Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Monday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers. Today, I have the honor of filling in for Bill Nygut. It's a cold one this morning as lawmakers convene at the state capitol in Atlanta for day five of this year's General Assembly session. Last week, lawmakers got their first look at Governor Brian Kemp's budget plan and the record-breaking $30 billion proposal funds state government for the next fiscal year, but it also does plenty more. We'll talk about that. As it stands, $600 million would go to new prisons, plus millions more in health care and mental health funding. And this budget also aims to fulfill several of the governor's campaign promises, like raises for teachers and state employees in the midst of a contentious election year. So we've got plenty to talk about today here. Let me introduce our great panel for today's show. We're joined by James Salzer, the AJC's state government and politics reporter. He's the budget guru. Thanks for joining us, James. You had a busy week last week with those budget hearings. Sure did. A lot of long days. Yeah, they did. And a lot of good information. I did tune in for uh, some of it, but not all of it, and probably not in the detail that you did. So I'm uh, looking forward to hearing more from you this uh, on this show. Great. We're also joined by Leo Smith, uh, CEO of Engaged Futures. He's a longtime Republican political organizer in Georgia, in Georgia. And so thank you for joining us, Leo. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, always good to have you. And last but certainly not least, we're joined by State Representative Terry Anulowitz, who represents District 42. And for our listeners, what does that include, your district? district? Absolutely. Thanks for having me here, Donna. District 42 is entirely in Cobb County. It includes uh, parts of Smyrna and Marietta, including the Atlanta Braves and the Dobbins Air Reserve Base. Yeah, you've got a really big district and really engaged and growing, very much growing. We're going to talk about some of yes. the things in in your district as the show goes on. So, James, let's get right into it. As I said, you're the budget guru. So let's start with you as we talk about the budget. And I did watch some of it last week. What was your overall takeaway from these hearings that you listened to? Probably the most um the, the thing that – this actually came up last year as well. Probably the most startling thing to me is, some, is, is the situation that a lot of state agencies are in, important state agencies like mental health, um, in terms of losing their employees. Um, I think mental health, uh, the commissioner said they've lost over 1,000 employees since the beginning of COVID. Um, and it's kind of like agency after agency got up and said, you know, we train people – uh, we spend thousands of dollars training people uh, to do uh, correctional work or work for the juvenile justice or work for the GBI or work for you know, any of these agencies. And then um, and then they they lose people very quickly. I think it was I think it's the uh, Department of Juvenile Justice that they had a 90 percent turnover rate in one year. Uh, and that was down from the previous year. So um, 
you know, after after uh, the week earlier, the the governor saying well, we're going to give five thousand dollars raises to employees. Um, some of these agency directors, you know, were came in and said, you know, we're very happy we're getting these raises. I think it'll help, but it's not going to solve the situation. Yeah. So our unemployment rate is low, and that's something that the governor keeps talking about. But yet we're seeing all these this this high turnover. Yeah, that's 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 the the thing is that is the that in private sector, uh, obviously, uh, during and after COVID or well, COVID still going on. I shouldn't say after, but the beginning of the COVID pandemic, um, in the private sector, companies are you know providing pay raises, raising it up to fifteen twenty dollars an hour. Some of these jobs that in the past had been kind of low wage jobs, and um, State government has really not kept up over the years. They've they've gone years and years and years where uh, a job, for instance, like a, uh, a a guard at a juvenile facility, um, they've raised it only recently up to starting to pay of thirty one thousand dollars a year. But um, before that, I, I remember looking at budget number, excuse me, the salary numbers you know, three four years ago, and some of these some of these uh, people were going through training, becoming guards in juvenile facilities. And making like you know twenty five thousand dollars a year in a, in in a in a very very difficult job, right? So yeah, so what? So I remember last year talking to uh, Labor Commissioner Mark Butler about this situation, and he was like, he was having trouble keeping people because he said there were that there were, you know, fast food restaurants that were paying as much as he was paying his employees, um, at a time when you know they were super stressed out because they were so many people unemployed and trying to get unemployment benefits. And, you know, they were taking a lot of heat for not uh, reacting quickly enough. Yeah. So $5,000 sounds like a lot, but not enough when you're dealing with the, the type of um, problems that some of these agencies are dealing with. The The other part about this is Georgia, it used to be that these good government jobs, that's what they used to call them, the good government. You got a government job. <laughs> right. You, you got good job. A, good yeah, job. you got a good job with the government. You got a pension. And now right. they don't have that for state employees. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Right. They, they uh, in 2008, uh, actually, I think it was right before the I think it was the year the Great Recession started. But this actually was passed um, before the Great Recession uh, fully hit. Um, the state decided it was cheaper to eliminate um, pensions for new hires. So anyone hired in the last 13 years got kind of a hybrid, which has a 401k component as kind of the, the main component. Um, if you were hired before 2008, you got um, a pension um, that that is similar in 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 how they decide what your pension is to the teacher retirement system. Teachers and school employees, university employees, still have a pension through TRS, but state employees that are that are hired in the last 13 years do not. Yeah, so it's it's hard to it's hard to. Um... It's hard for them to stay in those jobs knowing they don't have that. And um, I know I know that these directors of these agencies are really upset over that. Leo, I want to bring you in on this. And, you know, you'd think being able to have the, the, the governor say $5,000 uh, raise for a state employees is a good thing. So what's your take on what this will all mean in the long run? Well, I think we're going through the up and down cycle 
of having been coming out of a recession, 2006, 2007, 2008, having Spartan sort of uh, budget considerations. The, the governor, of course, uh, Brian Kemp being a conservative governor when it comes to savings, being like Deal and wanting to have a rainy day fund. And, and so I think we're going through the ebb and flow of being able to give to people to create a competitive environment for retaining employees and being able to have emergency funds available for the state for rainy days. And I think people will well receive these increases that um, the governor has emphasized throughout his budget um, from state employees to educators, um, and then dealing with issues like uh, the level of care we have with from counselors to you know how we're uh, dealing with the availability of medical services in Georgia. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Representative uh, Nulowitz, Terry, we want to bring you into this. How much of the hearings did you watch last week? All of them. Okay. I am on the House Appropriations Committee. I'm actually on the Human Resources Subcommittee, so we're going to be dealing with a lot of that funding for mental health defects. Uh, but I did. I watched all of the <laughs> the hearings only in person one day. I took advantage of being able to wear soft pants to watch them. But uh, but James is absolutely right that there. I mean, there is a lot of money in this budget. I know in my budgeting experience, both with municipal and with the state government, it's actually a lot harder to do a budget when you have more money to work with. I feel like when you are in leaner times, it it is almost easier to find consensus. And I know that. The pay raises are something that I, I definitely support. I mean, one of the things we heard over and over and over again from every single commissioner, department head, turnover, the turnover numbers are just staggering. And we can't attract and retain employees if we don't pay them competitively. And so I, I was very glad to see that. But no, it, it's going to be a, you know, this week we'll get into in the House the appropriations subcommittees are going to start meeting. That's when we'll we'll really start getting down to the you know all of the smaller dollar amounts that make up these much larger dollar amounts. Um, we do have a lot more money to work with, which is a good thing. But we need to make sure that we're making we're, we're targeting that money to the areas that need it most because we did have several years of pretty intense cuts. Yeah. You know, James, you know, $30 billion, a $30.2 billion budget sounds like a lot. Um, and it is. But there's so much out there. There's so much need that's going to take place. But let, let's talk. Let's talk about this budget a little bit in terms of, you know, you've been down there covering the the, the budgets over the years uh, for a long time. So what is your your big take on um, comparing this to other budgets? Um, there really is no comparison. I, I, I've covered the state budget for 32 years, and um, there every year that there is an election year, a re-election year for a governor, um, no matter what what the party or who the person is, there's there's going to be uh, they're going to try to do things that will will obviously you know be popular uh, as they run for re-election. But Governor Kemp um, has uh, an unprecedented amount of money i mean he has last year set a record for most uh, tax revenue this year will set another record for tax revenue and that doesn't even include the covid money which we haven't actually spent yet uh from um the march um uh bill that the congress passed march a year ago bill that congress passed and and the governor and the president signed so he had he had uh, uh, uh more money uh, than any governor in history to be able to 
uh, allocate. He, the, the, the part of the surplus went to fill the, the rainy day fund um, to its maximum level. We now have enough uh, in the rainy day fund to, to uh, pay for state government for a, a month and a half if they didn't have any money, which you know obviously is not going to happen. Um, at least we hope. Um, so, um, kind of overall, it was. Uh, um, I wrote a piece that was in uh, today's AJC about how this was just, this was, you know, all, all he could, essentially every promise he made almost, he could fulfill in this budget. And that's, that's kind of the broad take on it. Yeah, I think it was like, it, it's like he's like Santa Claus. He can do just yeah. about anything, right? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was yep. a great article for people who want to check out the, the um AJC on that. I'd, I'd like to have you explain a little bit about how we got here, because um, we understand that back in 2020, the, you know, the state agencies had to take 10 percent cuts. And we had, you know, right. uh, you know, this was, you know, around the pandemic time and, and, and before and people were thinking things were going to be bad. So how did we we get to this point? And the other part of that is asking whether or not the the money that now comes in because of state taxes for online um, purchases is make is part of that difference. Right. And it, there, there's there's several components to it, but one one of them is as you said, we in, in we started 2020 before the pandemic. Um, Governor Kemp and his advisors were concerned that there'd be a slight downturn in the in the economy. So he had already asked for budget cuts before the pandemic hit. Uh, January 2020, when the first the fastest bills I've ever seen passed the legislature was a bill to increase um, collection of taxes on on uh, online sales. Um, so they passed that uh, that went into effect, you know, that year. Obviously, when the economy shut down, um, we were all buying a lot more stuff um, online. And so that that did give a, a pretty big boost to uh, the revenue collections. Uh, fast forward to 20, uh, June 2020, they passed uh, the, the budget that was passed was a 10 percent cut in state agencies because they thought that there was going to be a pandemic recession. Well, the economy was opened up already by then. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, the federal government was pouring money into the state. Uh, both in the form of uh, just checks to people and also uh, other forms of aid, uh, the, the the loans to businesses, for instance, uh, and later tax credits, uh, child tax credits. So there was a lot of federal money flowing at the same time. That allowed people to to buy more. That allowed people to save more, both. And so that played a big part also in, in uh, increase, increasing state revenue. Um, that... A lot of that federal money is uh, has now gone away, so we'll see what happens in 2022. Yeah, that helped a lot. And Terry, you've been doing appropriations for a number of years, so it, there's no way that you or anybody else could have saw this coming. What What are your thoughts? No, that's absolutely right. This is, you know, I've I've heard it mentioned, you know, yeah, maybe Kemp held back so we could have this surplus. I don't think there is any universe in, in which that was a possibility. I think, you know, if, if that was the case, he would have done the teacher raises. This is, it is, you know, I, I've been, this is my second year on the appropriations committee. James has been down here a lot longer and 
but but I agree this is this is completely unprecedented. And so figuring out how we can best have this money help Georgians and help them quickly, which I think we're going to be able to do, is what we're going to be having a lot of a lot of conversations about. There is, yeah, it's hard to find the words to articulate what what we're actually going to be doing with this budget process because it's not something that we have ever had the opportunity to do before. And I guess this year will be good practice for next year. Yeah, if, if, the, if the if the projections are accurate. Yeah, Leo. Yeah, so it's so wonderful to hear a, a state legislator, uh, you know, sort of speak a little positively about the amount of money that we have in the in the state digest to use and and to be speechless. But I don't think the governor will be quite speechless on uh, being able to use this surplus as part of his campaign, um, campaigning for governor and a part of his success record. I think he's getting a lot of attention right now, um, reversing some of the criticism he got on closing the. Uh, the, the state of Georgia in response to COVID. And I think in hindsight, he's going to, of course, push the idea that reopening Georgia, keeping Georgia open um, has been part of the success for Georgia, for small businesses being able to contribute to the overall tax digest of the state. Yeah, certainly great in this political year, during this year where he's campaigning. Um, how much, Leo, do you think this uh, will help him down the line in terms of, you know, he's, he's got uh, David Perdue as a major challenger leading into the primary, and then after that, Stacey Abrams. So, you know, he he's can really build on this political capital, right? Correct. The governor is always, an incumbent governor is always in a strong position to be able to make the case especially when they have good news to report. And even in this nationalized, very divisive political, uh, you know, zeitgeist that we're in right now, the governor, if you look just at a policy perspective and you look at the, the managing of the budget, the managing of uh, keeping schools open as much as they can and, and that uh, control from the state level, et cetera, He's got a pretty good track record that is very positive with citizens if you ask them in a nonpartisan way about how they feel about the state. So he's in a good position to be able to hold his seat um, once we get to the general, providing, of course, he survives this wild primary we're about to have. Yeah. I, I want to get back to a couple of things we talked about, uh, jobs in particular. So we, we know that the, the unemployment rate is low, and you've talked about state jobs. Let's talk overall about jobs numbers out there. And, Terry, I want to get to you on this a little bit on, you know, I know the uh, Democratic response to the state of the state um, state of the state message from Governor Kemp, um, Leader Beverly, Leader James Beverly, Minority Leader talked about the the whole problem with people. Um, they may be making money, but is it enough money for them to live? And, you know, job numbers are up and all of that stuff, but there are still people who are, we're dealing with people who are in the gig economy, low-wage labor, all of that kind of thing. And and health insurance is a part of it. We can get in that a little bit more. But what what are you, what is your take on where this money is going and how, how we're actually looking as a state when it comes to jobs? That's a great question because there, there are. I mean, the unemployment rate is very low. If you want a job, chances are there's a job you can get. Is that a job where you'll be able to support your family? Even as wages have increased, we know in metro Atlanta, housing is incredibly expensive. That is an issue throughout I mean, in, in, in my district, you know, which is 20 minutes from downtown. It is a major issue. It is a major issue throughout the city of Atlanta. It is a major issue in Cobb and Gwinnett. I mean, it is something we hear about everywhere. And so you have to figure out, okay, 
if you if you are employed even with one of these jobs, are you able to actually still support your family with one job, two jobs, three jobs? How are you paying for your family's health care expenses? We still have not had any kind of Medicaid expansion. The state is still passing up, you know, tens of millions of federal dollars every year because of the governor's refusal to expand Medicaid. So so many families are doing this without health insurance. There are caregiving. I mean, and this is one of the things that is keeping people out of the workforce. Overwhelmingly, when you talk to, to, to people who aren't in the workforce, so much of it is because, because of caregiving. The cost of child care has increased because child care facilities have had to increase their wages so they can attract and maintain and retain employees because they're having a labor crunch in the child care industry. You have a lot of caregivers who have been ill or are, are, you know, people are afraid of giving their parents COVID with their unvaccinated, you know, toddlers and children. There are a lot of issues and why people aren't going back into the workforce, even with these jobs available. And one of the main barriers to entry is caregiving, which is something that, that we really haven't talked about. In fact, the governor's Medicaid, you know, his, his, his Medicaid waiver that he's, I think they've filed an appeal for that the Biden administration denied doesn't give any exemptions for caregivers. There's a work requirement, and they don't care if you're if you have caregiving issues. And so there's a devaluation of caregiving that's been happening by the administration. So I think that's something that that if we're talking about labor, we also need to be talking about caregiving. Yeah, Let, let's talk about Medicaid expansion, uh, Terry. Let's stick with you a little bit more on that. So right now, we we know that as of last week, the governor announced that he is suing the. Um, me, um, excuse me, the Biden administration over Medicaid rejection, like the, the fact that the Biden administration said, hey, I, I know you've asked for these waivers. Uh, one has a, a work requirement to it that the um, that the governor is asking for asking for. And another one, um, there's it charges some Medicaid recipients some mo- monthly premiums for their health coverage. And so the Biden the um the Trump administration said, OK, the Biden administration has said no. And now the governor is rejecting it. But it wasn't going to be a lot to begin with. Right. As far as the Democrats are concerned. No, it wasn't going to be it wasn't going to cover the amount of Georgians we could cover if we just expanded Medicaid. And that is what is so frustrating to to me as a Democrat, but also to me as a human being who represents a district that has a very high amount of undocs, of, of un people without health insurance. And it is, it's frustrating because my, if you look at my district, we are thriving. We have the battery, we have the, you know, part of the Cumberland area in my district, the city of Marietta, city of Smyrna, areas that are just absolutely booming. Yet we have these discrepancies and we have so many families who aren't able to get health insurance. And, and it's frustrating because the state as a whole, again, we are passing up all of this money. It is our tax dollars that we're sending to the federal government that we could be could be coming back into the state to keep Georgians healthy. And we, we're, you know, the administration is refusing to do that. And it, it, they've, they've locked in to this notion of the work requirement, which, again, totally undermines caregivers, totally devalues the, the dynamics that are happening in these families. It's very, very frustrating. We're spending all this money on all of these appeals and trying to get all these waivers, and we could be bringing money back into Georgia to help keep Georgians healthy. Yeah, and I understand it was only going to cover about 50,000 people, and there are maybe a quarter of a million maybe in Georgia, there's an estimate, that may need, um, could be helped under expanded Medicaid. That's exactly right. Okay. James, let's talk about that in the budget. What, What did you hear last week? 
Um, nothing about it, Medi- uh, Medicaid expansion. Not at all. It's, it's not politically. <laughs> it's not politically going to happen. And the, actually, the numbers I think are half a half a million people would be uh, helped by it, and it wouldn't be tens of millions coming to the state. It would probably be billions um, for the federal government because they're going to cover you know huge like ninety ninety five percent I think of the cost. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 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 now we've gotten kind of to a talking partisan talking point uh, uh, issue. I mean, uh, something we regularly hear now is that every every time there's discussion about how we should spend money, uh, Democrats say expand Medicaid, and Republicans say it's too expensive. When the the debate has really been going on ten years, and I I, I my personal opinion is not about. It's not about money. It's about the fact that that Republicans have said have kind of, uh, you know, built in this notion that they're not going to expand Medicaid. They're just it's not going to happen. So um, I think the cost is probably somewhat irrelevant. I think the the estimate was it would cost uh, an extra two hundred million dollars a year. Well, the state spends more than two increases Medicaid more than two hundred million dollars a year every year. It's not a, it's not a, that number in itself. Um, unless you're, in, you know, and you're in a recession, obviously it would be. But in a, in a, you know, we're we're going to spend if, if this bill, if this uh, budget passes, six hundred million dollars to buy a prison and build a new one. So two hundred million dollars is not an undoable number. Um, but the reality is, is that that it's kind of this entrenched position that it's not going to happen. So the, you know, during the hearings, they're not going to discuss this because it's not, you know, not including this budget. And the governor is, is uh, you know, did put in money for his own um, plan, uh, put in and it has put in money for a reinsurance plan with the Department of Insurance to lower uh, health care prices or excuse me, health premium prices. They during the hearings, they did discuss that, oh, this has reduced uh, health premium. Um, I didn't see any numbers on that, but that's that's what they're saying that that the money that's put into the reinsurance fund has um, kept uh, has reduced premiums. Yeah, that's it, about it. That's about it for terms of uh, Medicaid expansion. Yeah, when you talk about you know health care, you talk about we talked about jobs and people struggling even with you know getting more money, but we still you know if they're putting out more to try to deal with health issues, that's a problem. And Leah, you got to jump in on this and and your take. Yeah, I just think this is this is one of those issues. As much as some of us people who pay attention to the, the brass tacks of policy and budget. This is a wonky issue, to be quite honest with you, and it is a partisan issue because the, when we say that, we really don't understand why why states can't afford it. Well, I mean, the fact is the federal government pays about, what, 64, according to report, 64% of the cost of Medicaid. The states are doing 36% of it. But there are conservatives still concerned about whether or not you can depend on the federal government. We look at Congress and we go, look how really kind of ineffective and broken Congress is. And there is a lot of fear and lack of institutional trust when it comes to federal government. That needs to be addressed. There needs to be more public discussion at the get it, get put it where the goats can get it, understanding of how this all works for the local taxpayer. I don't think we're doing a good enough job of that. Okay. Well, I appreciate this conversation from all of you, but we need to hit our first break. So we'll come back and talk about more. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. 
We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, filling in for Bill Nygut today. And I'm joined by AJC state government reporter James Salzer, Republican organizer Leo Smith, and state representative Terry Anulowitz. So let's get right back into the conversation. And I, I wanted to talk about, briefly about something that uh, we're all dealing with when it when it comes to this pandemic. And James, I want to start with you. Uh, one of the... the um, one of the areas that the Democrats talked about, uh, leader James Beverly, was that the fact that the in his state of the state address, the governor didn't talk a lot about the pandemic relief or things, the problems that that have cropped up. Um, what did you hear when it came to the budget on the, those issues? Well, the, the the thing is, is that there was there were two. The Democrats brought up the COVID relief, and the thing is, is that money hasn't been spent yet. It's sitting in a bank account. Um, they're they're kind of being deliberate about how they spend the COVID relief money. They've gotten half of what they were um, supposed to get, and supposed to get the other half later this year. And um, they formed committees, and they had they had uh, people apply. They had over a thousand people apply people and governments and companies apply for COVID relief money. And that should be coming out fairly shortly, at least the initial um, um, crunch of money or um, grants going out to people. But um, that, again, that was, that was something that was brought up and I was a little bit surprised because um, we've written quite a bit about the fact that the money hasn't gone out yet. So um, uh I don't, and, and also the also the COVID money is not money that would be in the state budget anyways. I mean, in the sense that it would not, it's not part of state revenue. Right. I, I realize that, but I, I know Terry. I think the the fact that it's still sitting out there is we talk about the state budget. The fact that there's this other pot of money out there um, is is problematic for some people. Well, and I I I can see why. I can see why it's, it's a lot of money. There were things that came up also with, with regards to you know. I think there there are a couple of ways that that pandemic money, you know, for lack of a better term, impacts the economy. One of it is how you know part of the reason why our economy has been so strong and why our revenues have been so high is because there was this influx of support for families through through the pan, the, the, the the American Rescue Plan Act. And families were getting that money. That has now stopped, and so I think that you're going to see a, a reduction in spending as a result of families not having those additional funds coming in anymore. So I think that's one way it's impacting it. There also have the fact that there is um, a lot of rent relief money, a lot of rent relief money that the state has yet to distribute to tenants in need. And that is something that I think is, 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 is having an impact also. But yeah, that, that it, it, it's frustrating. There's this pot of money sitting there. It's, it's, not, it's not getting to where it needs to go. And I think that that is something that is going to, you know, the state economy said, you know, he doesn't he doesn't anticipate any kind of a recession, but there's going to be sort of this, you know, tapering off is what is what is anticipated later this year. And I think that that those that pandemic money might play into that where that where that pandemic money ends up. Yeah. Leah, why aren't Republicans talking about this a little bit more? Uh, um, there you are. Am I muted? OK, I'm back. All right. Yeah, I, I just don't think that we're hearing a lot about it because people are confused as to where the blockage is. Um, some people think that the, the stall of the American Rescue Plans is coming from a, a federal government 
um, stall. Um, and some of that is. And, and of course, the president, President Biden, has been a little bit distracted um, with uh, really voting rights becoming a big wedge issue. Um, and of course, he has you know, been stopped on his big plan for the, the, the U.S. And so we've lost some focus there. He is the Congress is now talking about another CARES package. So that is starting to, to brew there. And I think people, will, it'll come back into the forefront now that we're, we're getting through some of those issues. And it looks like voting rights is not going to be a major issue. Then we'll find another issue. And this will probably be it. At the state level, I just think it's a matter of just catching up with a large sum of money being dumped into the state. And, you know, the system is just not made to be able to handle that. And so we're just in that process where I know in Cobb County, Cobb County has done a pretty good job of creating assistance from helping small businesses to even helping uh, make sure money gets out to its agencies, including uh, passing out lots of uh, test kits this morning at Jim Miller Park. Yeah, there's there's a there's a there's a lot to be said for that. Absolutely. I'm going to change gears a little bit and I want to talk about and I'll start with you, Terry, the um, the AJC's uh, political columnist, Patricia Murphy, did a a great uh, article yesterday, an opinion piece about suburban women and the problem with suburban women. Uh, She called it the suburban women problem. And and she talked about uh, State Representative Jasmine Clark and a podcast she has and and just the whole idea of who we think suburban women are has certainly changed from, you know, like this view um, over the years. So talk a little bit about what what your thoughts are about who suburban women are in the political in the, the political atmosphere. Absolutely. I was delighted to talk to Patricia for that piece. And, you know, like I am a suburban woman, right? Like I, I live in the suburbs. I have kids who play youth sports and I volunteer at their schools. And, you know, it is I think. I, I am a white, you know, upper middle class woman, and I think I'm probably what a lot of people think of when they think suburban women, but what they need to think of is the range of women who live across suburban metro Atlanta and, frankly, this, you know, all of the suburban areas in the state of Georgia. We are not a monolith. We are black. We are white. We are Asian. We are Hispanic. We are all trying to do our best for our families, and I think that there is this almost this again we're all lumped together and that's such an it's such a gross inaccuracy that it is it's it's a little bit frustrating and and it's frustrating to see policymakers and candidates running for office talking about the suburban women problem without really trying to drill down to what these problems actually are and i mentioned one of the biggest ones earlier and again that's caregiving concerns if you know will our kids be able to stay in the classroom so that that we can do our jobs most suburban women do work. Most suburban women are not the stay-at-home moms that I think was originally part of that sort of that suburban women um, categorization. And, you know, as a suburban woman who serves in the state legislature, I'm not hearing from other suburban women who are concerned about a lot of the things that have gotten a lot of airtime lately. Like, I don't get phone calls about critical race theory being taught in schools. I don't get, that's just not a thing that happens. I don't get phone calls about parents who are worried about what their kids are seeing in the school libraries. You know, I get phone calls from people who are, again, they're, they're concerned about whether their schools are going to stay open. They're concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to afford childcare. They are concerned about, you know, things like that. They're not concerned about the things that I think a lot of political candidates want to make it sound like we care about. 
Yeah. So if, if anybody wants to read that article, it was January 18th, Patricia Murphy, AJC's article. And and I want to focus more on critical race theory because, of course, that is something that is we're going to be dealing with at the Capitol. And, James, um, your your colleague, uh, Tai Tayagami, wrote about this, the HB 888 already out there, uh, saying it could drain hundreds of millions of dollars from public education. So people aren't thinking about CRT and critical race theory in the way that um, and in, in terms of the money, are they? No, that's that's and that, I think a similar situation has evolved on different issues, maybe in Florida, where the governor has said, if you do certain things, I think mask mandate was what he started with. But um, that's how that's essentially how they would lose money. I, I just have not, you know, I've, I've I, I, like you, I've watched and seen the um, usually exurban um, debates at school board meetings on this topic. But um, I, I've actually asked Ty before, like, you know, well, is this actually something that's happening? Or, or is this something that is that, you know, is rumored to have happened? Or is someone's interpreting this as being part of this? Or is it just made up political um you know, is it is it a, a topic of the day that the that one party has decided this is what's important to win you know win an election, and so this is going to be something we're going to talk, our, you know our base is concerned about. Um, that's clearly what happened in in Virginia, where the governor made it a big or excuse me the Republican gubernatorial candidate made it a big issue, and um, and and suddenly it was you know something that people were voting on um, without knowing I think what it meant, what it is, and whether it's actually being taught. And um, I, I've yet to see a kind of a, a piece or um, examples of, of um, in, in kind of a, in more than a like a anecdotal situation, I've yet to see kind of examples of this actually being taught. Right. So critical race theory is not taught in, in K through 12 schools uh, in Georgia that we know of, you know, so it's not a formal curriculum. And certainly the state doesn't deal with curriculum. That's individual local school districts. But House Bill 888, uh, one of the things it, do, it does say it would dock school districts 20 percent of their state spending uh, state funding for violations on a number of prohibitions, and it's 18 pages long. So, Leo, this is the social issue, certainly getting a lot of early play in this legislative session, among other uh, social issues. Um, where do you see this playing out down the road, though? You know, back in early January, Speaker Rawson said that we were going to deal with sort of brass tax issues for the state. We weren't going to get into a lot of wedge social issues. This certainly has been inserted as a wedge social issue that's mostly political and rhetoric oriented rather than um, really good governance oriented. Certainly, uh, Republicans and conservatives don't traditionally think that we ought to uh, have a state determine uh, what should be happening in the classroom. That is, we're generally against that. We are generally for local control and, and local influence and in teachers deciding what's uh, happening in the classroom. Uh, this is a shift uh, just based on national politics. You know, the left kind of uh, 
sort of aided and abetted this and making one critical mistake in critical race theory in that they started defending at the beginning of this insertion of this as a grenade in the political sphere. They started defending critical race theory. Now, um, you know, sort of people who are experienced with this issue from a college theoretical perspective have said, no, wait a minute, it's never been taught in the classroom. And that is catching hold. I think long term, this is going to fizzle as um, something that Republicans will start to say, wait a minute, do we really want to expand the role of government and uh, schools to this degree? Do we really want to create another bureaucracy, uh, bureaucratic process in how education is taught? I, I really don't think that this is going to really turn into a law, and I'm hoping that it won't turn into a law as a conservative, and, uh, and especially as someone who believes in schools, we suggest teach facts. Yeah, well, we've seen it come turn into law in other places like Texas and Oklahoma. So we'll we'll see what happens. It's certainly something we're going to talk about a lot during this legislative session. And maybe, as you say, Leo, maybe just the first part of the session, we'll say. We've got to get to our final break. So stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry. I'm sitting in for Bill Nygut, and uh, we have a great set of gr- uh, great group of guests today, including Representative Terry Onulowitz, James Salser with the AJC, and Leo Smith, who is GOP consultant and president of engaged futures. So we're, we're going to continue our conversation. And I want to get into a little bit of what's going on with this whole cityhood movement, not just Buddy, Buckhead cityhood, but East Cobb cityhood. And I'm glad that we have uh, Terry Anulowitz here to talk a little bit about that. But we, I want to start with the, the jolt this morning um, the, in, for the AJC came out with saying that there's a poll of 400 Buckhead registered voters conducted by North Star Research and Wid Ayers, a well-known GOP pollster, from January 16th and 19th with a margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percent. But it shows that voters now oppose splitting away from the Atlanta um, by... 51 percent to 40 percent. And that's a reversal of a poll that they did in June when it comes to Buckhead residents. I know that there may be a Republican meeting tonight dealing with uh, Buckhead cityhood. The um, are we going to see this fizzle out a little bit more? And then I'll start with you, Leo, because you, you we t- just talked about critical race theory and that, you know, it looks like with um Speaker Ralston, I'm sorry, um, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, um, Jeff Duncan, has actually kind of changed things on, on when it comes to Buckhead cityhood by putting the, the bill in a committee that's mostly Democratic. Yeah, we can remember from Schoolhouse Rock, I'm just a bill, I'm only a bill, and how bills get made. And uh, Lieutenant Duncan is uh, giving us a lesson. Um, the uh, assignment of bills to committees can determine whether or not it's successful or it fails. Democrats have been against this. Lieutenant Governor, uh, the author of GOP 2.0, uh, Duncan is uh, sort of saying, hey, I'm going to make sure that I put my finger on this by assigning this in the way that it will die. One of the things that uh, is certainly... Uh, consistent with shares in common with the Marietta and East Cobb movement and this one is the issue that really about better governance. And that is a leveraging that I think we're going to see out of this 
Local people want local policies that are germane to their local interests. And sometimes you get niche communities, um, whereas Buckhead or the unincorporated parts of uh, Cobb County, um, where they want to preserve their local identity. And, and I, so I think now, you know, you would see Andre, uh, the Mayor Dickens, now sort of like adding some element of discussion and community engagement that might create and address those issues. So this is very interesting to watch play out. Yeah, it really is. And so, so we we can't compare this because this is a city trying to carve out of a city. But let, we're talking in Cobb County about the uh, the interest in carving out, you know, um, out of a uh, taking unincorporated areas and 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 making them into cities. And I live in Fulton County, and I watched it happen. And there's a, you know, like just little tiny track of unincorporated areas still left in Fulton County. Cobb seems to be moving in that direction, certainly, Terry. Um, and there with this. And the East Cobb cityhood moved. That was one of the first bills that a committee even looked at that first week of the session. Um, HB 841. Um, talk about that a little bit. The uh, representative Matt, representatives Matt Dollar at Seltzer and uh, Sharon Cooper are sponsoring that one. Yes. So East Cobb cityhood and and. So Cobb right now has six cities, and they're cities that I think of as legacy cities. Smyrna, for example, is celebrating its sesquicentennial this year. It's turning 150 years old. These are cities that have been around for a very long time. You know, Smyrna, Marietta, Powder Springs, Austell, Kennesaw, and I'm missing somebody, but there, there are six. And we have these We have these cities. They are full-service cities. They're cities, you know, most, most of them have police and fire public works, you know, we're talking water, sewer, Marietta has power, there are you know, parks, Smyrna has its own library system. I mean, these, these are true, genuine, full-service cities. And I've had people ask me, because I do oppose the city of East Cobb, and they say, well, why, why don't you want other people in Cobb County to be able to have what y'all have in Smyrna? And my answer is that East Cobb is not what we have in Smyrna. The way the city of East Cobb is structured is unlike any city in Cobb, unlike any city in Metro Atlanta, and I'm pretty sure it's unlike any other city in the state of Georgia, in that you could have a supermajority who lives in one cul-de-sac because you have six members of their city council. Three of them would have to live in the district, but the other three would be elected at large. In fact, everyone would be elected at large, but three would have to live in the district. So you could have four people living in one cul-de-sac. And that is not a city, I think, when people think of having better representation. That, to me, is a glorified HOA. And so I don't think that if people who are talking about wanting better representation, they, they feel like they're not getting that, that in-depth, that hyper-local representation from their county commissioners, if they think they're going to get this from the way the city of East Cobb is structured, I think they are very mistaken. Yeah. Uh, James, I'm just curious. Is there a state budget line item when it comes to these cityhood movements? No. Okay. No, there's so, nothing, there, there's nothing to do with it. There has nothing. Your thoughts, though? Yeah, I, it, you know, I, I have uh, I have people that both I cover I've covered and are friends on on the particularly the Buckhead uh, issue, and I think the the bottom line is going to be that both not only does the lieutenant governor oppose it, I think the speaker does. I don't know that he is. In fact, I'm pretty sure he hasn't like necessarily stated it. Um, but I don't, I don't know that he thinks that's a good idea either. So I think you have the leaders of both chambers probably um, saying, uh, you know, let's let them argue this. Let's let them argue this. Let's let them have press conferences and have polls and whatnot. 
But in the end, I'd be surprised if it gets if it passes. Yeah. So, so Leah, let's let's talk about what's going on in Cobb County. Back to that. Some see these movements as another way to try to deal with the fact that Georgia's turning more blue because of the wins, you know, by uh, Congressman Lucy McBath, by the you know the the wins by uh, the state senators, uh, U.S. Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. So, is is that what we're seeing here? Cobb is trying to. It's kind of a backlash because of that. Yes, I think that we cannot separate ourselves. Uh, the United States uh, is going through a huge shift in a demographic uh, reality. And, and so that is having its uh, challenges at the local level as people are not uh, immune to what's happening with national political rhetoric and fear-mongering that political consultants are used to throw in on the basis of race. Um, we are becoming a much more politically sectarian nature, na- nation. We're becoming a much more racially identified political um, community. Uh, all of this is something that we're just going to have to work out as citizens, and we're going to have to bring this local and bring it home. This is where it starts. So, you know, I think we need to be careful about making assumptions where I agree that uh, the cityhood for Buckhead is probably going to have really any any trouble really kind of passing. I'm not so sure that the uh, East Cobb, though, it it needs to really kind of be drilled down on what kind of city they're trying to form. Um, But it has a whole separate process for whether or not it will become an actual city. I think there's a chance there that they'll be able to be successful there. But the bigger question is, how can we locally engage on discussions on who we are as an American democracy? How do we settle our disputes? How can we do it together while people, uh, in a way that people won't fear the changing demographics? We need to have that discussion from schools to local governance. Okay, we we don't have a lot of time left, but I I wanted to see if you guys wanted would comment on on something entirely different, and that is that Senator John Ossoff has a bill, he's sponsoring a bill that would stop lawmakers and their spouses from trading individual stocks. And um, so right now we're going to we're going to see that out of Washington. It's going to be a big deal, and we certainly know that um, that we had uh, Tom Price. Um, Representative Tom Price, when he was here, was accused, had some accusations against him in terms of um, trading individual stocks. Uh, Terry, I'll begin with you. Any comments on what uh, Senator Ossoff is doing? I don't think it's necessarily a bad proposal. I mean, I, you know, I think that it, it, it's I, and I think I think it's wise if you're going to be talking about the members talking about their spouses also, because they're, you know, there's certainly plenty of conversations I would imagine that are had with members and stuff and about the different things they're working on. So, and I mean, I, mean, I, I understand the hesitation of some folks have, but I also think that it, it, it is this merits discussion because we've seen what's happened with, with, with certainly in Georgia with, with former Senator Leffler and, and others who have done, a, you know, made a lot of money on a lot of things. Something real quick, Leo, anything? No, I agree. I think conservatives alike want to trust uh, Congress leader, congressional leaders to be about us in reducing um, that type of uh, insider um, uh, success. Okay, Leo, you get the last word because that's all for the time we have now for Political Rewind today. Wonderful conversation, as always. Thank you, James Salzer, Leo Smith, and Representative Daria Nulowitz for joining the show today. Bill Nygut will be back tomorrow with a fresh episode. Join me tonight on Lawmakers on GPB-TV at 7 p.m. We're going to take a look, a closer look at constitutional carry legislation. Thanks to producer uh, Sam Bermasda, senior producer Amelia Brock. I'm sorry. 
Natalie Mendenhall and Jesse Nicewanger for your work. I'm Donna Lowry. Thanks for joining us. Stay healthy and get a vaccine. Wear your mask. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.